Lockdown Science. Welcome to the return of Lockdown Science on CAMFM. It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new lockdown, and we're feeling all right, I guess. So we thought we'd come back with our original brand of COVID-free science news and chat. That's right. This show, as with the previous ones, is 100% COVID-free. We're here to tell you about the cool science that's happening, but not getting very much press, because understandably... They're focused on COVID. And as you'll know, this is partly just our way of making sure we're doing something other than, well, working or meticulously documenting the behaviour of our cat. So what's changed since the last lockdown? Well, so the first lockdown, I was basically kept out of my lab. And this one... I'm... Nothing to do with COVID, just because you're not safe to be there. I'm just uh, just not a good person to be around. Just no. a liability. <laughs> just a liability. No, um, the first one was very strict. I wasn't allowed into the lab because no students were. And this one, it's, I mean, it's pretty normal. I mean, it's the new normal, right? So we wear face masks, we stay two metres apart. But to be honest, for me, life hasn't changed a huge amount. I mean, you're still working from home. Yeah, I have, I've been working from home throughout. It's sort of... It's just what I do now. I've just got a desk on the dining in the dining room. Yeah, we're all very happy about the desk on the dining room. The regular nightly charade where I have to move your diary off my dining plate. <laughs> yes. Move your, move your dining plate off my desk. <laughs> I know, I'm so sorry. Well, the one thing that has changed is that we're doing lockdown science again. We because are. Because we're back in lockdown. So it's good to be back. Exactly. It's good to be back. So on with the show. Science of the Week. First up, we have our Science of the Week quiz, where I test Andrew on his knowledge of science news that has hit the press in the last week or so. If you listen to the show during the last lockdown, you'll know that Andrew generally sucks at this. So it's partly a Not way... Not just generally sucks. <laughs> he just... Yeah, he <laughs> just, just... He just sucks in life, to be honest. fairly useless. Yeah, exactly. But I'm just trying to be nice, and he's not, he's not so great at this. So it is partly a way of making sure that he catches up on his science news. Want to defend yourself, or you agree? I, I think in the last uh, lockdown, I had a solid record of ranging anywhere between one and four or out of five on this quiz. That's true. We've never had a full score. No, I also, I also have don't think I've ever got them all wrong. So you know, that's it could go brilliantly, it could go terribly. Okay, you're you're really a hit and miss kind of guy. Yeah. Right. Well, how are we feeling about today? Well, I haven't looked at any news whatsoever, so, you know, the, the, the zero is more likely than the five. Good. Well, I think with that positive note, let's go on with the quiz. Number one, who, unlike their Disney namesake, doesn't want to be where the people are because they're heading out into space? Do you have any idea what I just asked? <laughs> no. <laughs> but Pluto? Oh, you know what? I mean, kind of good guess because you're like, Disney, space. Space, yeah. No, actually, no. It is the Aerial Exoplanet Space Telescope, which after two years of feasibility processes was this week given the go-ahead by European Space Agency member states to begin the construction phase. Mm. Aerial, Little Mermaid. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. That? I mean, tenuous, but fine. <laughs> well, Aerial stands... Actually, do you know what Aerial stands for? No. Okay. Well, you're probably not going to guess. So it's Atmospheric Remote Sensing Infrared Exoplanet Large Survey. So Ariel really does run off the tongue better. Yeah, yeah. So during its four-year mission, it's going to sit about 1.5 million kilometres from Earth and survey around 1,000 exoplanets to try to work out what they're made from and how they formed. Cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So yeah, so exoplanets are planets outside our solar system and we know that lots of them exist... 
but we know very little about their composition. So who knows? Maybe they'll even find some that could support life. Ooh, Ooh. little green man. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> yeah, that is very cool. So maybe we'll find some interstellar surprises. So this is the construction. Yeah, so they've done all the feasibility and they're now starting they're now they've now been given the green light to actually start constructing it. Okay, so launch isn't gonna be for Launch a is twenty twenty nine, I believe. Mm, okay. So it's still got a while off, but it's very exciting. Yeah. You know, because I mean, it costs quite a lot of money. So they do all the feasibility stuff to check that it's actually worth the money. Yeah. Do you remember I told you that last night I had a really weird dream where I went into space and there were exoplanets? This is is why. why. Ah, okay. (laughs) Anyway. She really lives the science. I really do. Number two. What has been spotted off the coast of Australia for the first time ever? New Zealand? <laughs> this is going to be a zero can of week. Isn't it, well, it? well, I mean, five is well out of the question now. It's a big fin squid. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, scientists working in the deep sea in the Great Australian Bight have recorded footage of big fin squid on two separate occasions. Mm. Do you know what a big fin squid looks like? I'm going to guess that it's sort of squid-like with some tentacles. Yes. uh, Maybe some big eyes and I'll wager some big fins. (laughs) You're a genius. Uh, Well, their body looks a bit like a wet napkin floating in the ocean. Pleasant. Yeah. And it's only about 15 centimetres long, the body. But they have these incredibly long tentacles that give them their name, which grow up to seven metres in length. Whoa. Now, they're found, like, kilometres deep in the ocean, and this is only the second time they've even been spotted in the Southern Hemisphere. So the sightings were actually caught on camera in 2015 and 2017, but the data has just been published this week. I always find this really funny because, like, a lot of science news is presented like it's immediate. Like, we've just found this new ancient human specimen except that we actually found it five years ago and we've just been, you know, doing CT scans and measuring it for the last five we did, years. We didn't want to tell anyone before until we got it peer-reviewed. Exactly. Well, you know what, though? That is good because it means that people don't make big claims that yeah. they can't back up. But it also exemplifies the incredibly slow nature of academia. Yeah. It's quite tedious sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. But anyway, that's exciting. Mm. So it's actually a northern hemisphere species. Yeah, usually. Mm. But this Weird. Been, yeah, but, but they've found it on two separate occasions um, off the coast of Australia. So we know it's not just a fluke. Mm. I mean... To be honest, we know so little about the bottom of the ocean that maybe it's actually just a, you know, a northern and southern hemisphere species. It's just we've not found it. Possibly. Before. So this, a lot of this was done with remote cameras. Mm. So like this is quite new technology that yeah. we're working with. But I like that. I think that's a, I think I'm going to count that as a good news story. Yeah. Number three. Why has a huge iceberg been in the news this week? Uh, have they been attacking ships again? No, they have not. Okay, well, that's good. Um, Has another one broken off from Antarctica? No, I mean, it did a while ago. That's kind of the problem. No, no idea? No idea. I thought you might have seen this on Twitter. Nope. The iceberg, known by the snappy nickname of A68A, is the world's largest iceberg, and crucially, it's heading straight for the island of South Georgia. Oh, dear. Yeah. So, knowing that it's the world's largest iceberg, can you guess the rough area of it in square (laughs) kilometres? Mm. 3,000. No, but I, I don't think that's too bad. It's about 4,700 square kilometres. Mm. And it weighs hundreds of billions of tonnes. It's heavy. Yeah. But the other dangerous thing about it is that it's it's relatively shallow, which means that it can get right up to the coast of South Georgia and effectively beach itself. 
So like you were saying, so it broke off from Antarctica in mid-2017. And since then, it's just been gradually floating towards the South Atlantic island. And it's been losing a couple of chunks here and there. But like, it's been staying massive. And the problem is that if it does indeed beach itself at South Georgia, it's going to be absolutely catastrophic for the wildlife, like penguins and seals, because they'll have to travel further from land to actually forage. Yeah. And it's like essentially going to become like an extension to the land. That's so weird. Yeah. But icebergs normally have far more below the ocean than above the ocean. So this is like a really flat one then, it's I quite, guess. It's, yeah, it's quite flat. I mean, mm. you know, it's, it's all relative. Yeah. But it's going to be able to kind of beach itself enough to cause problems with animals getting out to forage. Weird. And they were saying that also it's a problem because it's going to crush a load of stuff on the seafloor yeah. as well, ruin a load of habitats down there. It's quite scary, isn't it? And apparently if it goes, if it does land there, it'll be there for like 10 years. Because it'll take that long to melt. Yeah, I think so. Mad. Absolutely mad. That's crazy. So right now, it is heading straight on for South Georgia, but apparently it could still change course. Mm. So Bass Remote Sensing and Mapping Specialist, Dr Peter Fretwell, did tell BBC News, the currents should take it on what looks like a strange loop around the south end of South Georgia, before then spinning it along the edge of the continental shelf and back off to the northwest. But it's very difficult to say precisely what will happen. So I guess we'll just see. Yeah. What are your thoughts? It's pretty weird. I mean, it's quite cool. Yeah. I guess it's one of those, like, once in a few hundred years weird disturbance events that happens on, you know, islands or ecosystems or whatever. But Yeah. I suppose, like, I mean, that's the size of a county or a state. Yeah. It's massive. I mean, that's, that is bigger than Norfolk. <laughs> And we do like measuring things in Norfolk's. I, I mean, yeah, Every, everyone knows the size of Norfolk, right? Like it's sort of Every, it's just scalable. like right there in your head. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There we go. The terrifying iceberg that is bigger than Norfolk. Number four. How did the wholesome sounding? New- Sorry, I'm laughing already. I really enjoy this. <laughs> How did the wholesome sounding New Zealand Bird of the Year competition end up being embroiled in controversy this week? I'm uh, well. Presumably, everyone voted for Birdie McBirdface, and then they they overturned the public vote and named David Attenborough as their national bird. <laughs> no, good good answer, but no. I'll give you a bit more information. They specify all the birds, so you click on a bird, right? Oh, have they misidentified one? They haven't. Did they put an invasive bird on there? They did not. No, there was. And I quote, electoral fraud. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Maybe that's what Trump's been screaming about all this time. <laughs> he hasn't referred to which electric election was rigged. <laughs> he just really loves New Zealand birds. OK, so the Bird of the Year Award is run by New Zealand's Forest and Bird Association. And people vote for their favourite bird and they get like really into it. So this year, the little spotted kiwi shot into the lead. But then organisers realised that 1,500 of those votes were from the same IP address in Auckland. (laughs) (laughs) Just a kiwi with a vendetta. Yeah. So the rules are very clear. Each person can only vote once. And the amazing thing is that voting isn't even a quick process. You choose your five favourite birds, enter your details, then you get emailed a verification code that you then need to click on to finish the job. So someone did that 1,500 times. 
I mean, either that or it was a hacker who wrote a little bit of script to do it for them. Maybe. They think it was manual. Wow. So <laughs> I guess they must have been making up new names every time. I don't know. Anyway, they clearly really love the little spotted kiwi. <laughs> so I've been reading up about this competition and it's genuinely brilliant. <laughs> so people apply to be a bird species campaign manager and then they promote the bird across social media to try and get people to vote for it. Now, um, I would recommend looking at the campaign for the orange-fronted parakeet on Twitter and Instagram. It's running under the hashtag, the orange face you can trust. (laughs) It's it's complaining about interference in the race from big tech, is regularly accusing other birds' campaign teams of fraud, and it's already claiming it's won before the polls have closed. So we're recording this on a Sunday and the polls closed today. So by the time this episode goes out, the results will be in. Well, unless they have to have a recount. They might have to have a recount. Yeah. We are, we are, with this story, we are literally the equivalent of like, have I got news for you or something? I know, exactly, but for birds. Filming without knowing the answer. I know. Well, see, the problem is right now, it's not looking hopeful for the orange-fronted parakeet to come first. Oh, no. We just hope that they will accept defeat graciously but I'm not sure they will. Parrots are spiky little so-and-sos. They're they're not going to give up without a fight. (laughs) Anyway, so you should... I I didn't want to tell you about this because I wanted to quiz you, but you have to go look at this on Twitter. It's so good. That sounds good. That's a, that's a good outreach and engagement program as well. Yeah, that's that's right up there with Fat Bear Week. Oh, I love Fat Bear Week. So good. If you haven't heard of Fat Bear Week, go on Twitter and find it. Okay, fun question before we end that particular question. Do you know how many native birds New Zealand has? Because you are right. It's only native birds who are allowed to win this competition. Mm, no. I don't. I, I, I've heard, definitely heard the figures on like how many f- native flightless birds they've got, mm-hmm. and they've lost like you know fifty percent of them have gone extinct or something. And it's it's down from I don't know fifty-ish to twenty-five-ish or something. But I don't know about birds overall, including the ones that can still fly. It's one hundred and sixty-eight, mm. and more than okay. half of them are endemic, so they're only found in New Zealand. Yeah, very cool fact. Now you see why they love their birds so much. Yeah. Okay, number five. A futuristic type of travel has been tested with passengers for the first time ever this week. What is it? Oh, is it um, driverless cars? No, driverless cars have had... They've they've been tested with passengers lots of times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I heard something on the news about driverless cars uh, like a week or so ago. So you're, you're really creeping so up to that naught out of five. stab in the dark. I <laughs> suggest you try and think of a correct answer. <laughs> <sighs> What futuristic travel is there? Well, okay, this one is the Hyperloop, and specifically the Virgin Hyperloop. Do you know what Hyperloop is? No. No idea. Okay, they're basically like passenger pods inside a vacuum tube that Virgin hopes will one day reach more than a 1,000 kilometres per hour. Wow. Yeah. Uh, So where's this going? So this one is just a a 500-metre test tube tube, uh, (laughs) that was, like, I think, out in the desert in America. Okay. And it reached 172 kilometres an hour, taking just... Not quite a 1,000. Not quite, but they did say they were, like, massively limited by the fact that the the track was so short, and they're sort of safety testing it. But that only took 15 seconds Mm. to go 500 metres. Like, that's impressive. Now, I thought you would have heard of the Hyperloop because Elon Musk is quite vocal about it being a good idea. And now you're talking about it, I do, it is ringing some bells. Yeah. So Elon Musk is saying, you know, it's the future of travel, all this kind of thing. Mm. I don't know whether you're going to be able to actually get people to sit in a vacuum tube and happily go at a thousand kilometres an hour, but maybe. I, I mean, I would as an alternative. If, if it was like 
if it's a green solution to, you know, not flying. But, but how green can it be when you have to create all the infrastructure for it? Well, true. Yeah. But at least it's a one-time hit. Yeah. Right? It's like building a train line. Yes, true. Well, you're going to be really sad with the suggestions for it then. So suggestions for its use are to shorten the travel time between Gatwick and Heathrow airports to oh. four, <laughs> for four minutes. Wow. That, um, oh, that's really worthwhile, isn't yeah, it? Come on. I want to get on one of these things and get to China. That's what I was thinking, China. Yeah. yeah. So the other one that was suggested was Dubai and Abu Dhabi in 12 minutes. Again, kind of business centres. Yeah. yeah. Get me to China no, in, yeah. what, three hours or something? London to Beijing, London to New York. Yeah. That's what awesome. you want. Yeah. Amazing. Would you, do you think you'd go on one if if it was like tested and safe and green? Yes, I would. I mean, I actively think that's useless going <laughs> from Gatwick to Heathrow. Yes. But if it was actually going somewhere that was like going to dramatically shorten my travel time, you know, if, that, if it could take me to Morocco. Yeah, I'd do that. That'd be great. So I thought, well, that sounds quite scary, though. But um, one of the first people to try it, uh, who worked for Virgin, her name was Sarah Lukian, and she described it as feeling nothing like a roller coaster. But she did also say something about it being physically and psychologically thrilling or something. <laughs> so, it's a little bit like a roller coaster, then, isn't it? It is. But I suppose we can give her the benefit of the doubt, because if you're the first person to do anything, you're probably a little bit more freaked out. Yeah. But she did say it was very smooth. She was happy with the situation. Mm, okay. I mean, to be fair, I have, I'm no fan of roller coasters. But I have always said to people that if a roller coaster just went in a straight line very fast, I think I'd be okay <laughs> with it. My issue is the up-down twisty twist. So, so most of what and roller coasters. Most of what a roller coaster is, but not the speed per se. So I, I think on that basis, I have to at least give this a try if it becomes publicly available yeah. to kind of prove that I'm okay with the speed, just not the twisting and the up and down of a roller coaster. I don't know how likely this is, but I think it's exciting. I like the idea, as long as they use it in the right way and not just to link up airports in four minutes. You know what? It's the end of the quiz. And you have got a grand total of zero. Not out of five. Not out of five. Well, you know, it was a first oh, case for dear. everything. Maybe next time it could be a first case for actually getting all of the answers correct. Yeah, hey, you know, maybe maybe this is the motivation I needed to actually revise for one of these. I don't think it is. There no, is that's probably not. Absolutely not. Journal Club. Well, now it's time for Journal Club, and I am very excited because since the last lockdown, we've had nowhere to publicly vent about the weird and wonderful science papers we found. I mean, I don't have enough Twitter followers to start like actively losing them by talking about what was it, fluid dynamics of penguin poop? I think we had. Yeah, the that was a good one. one. Yeah. yeah, but now we can tell you guys again. So this week, I found an oldie but a goodie, which is. I mean, it's maybe not relevant to current science, but is sure as anything relevant to my life. It's an article by Richard Fetter from 2013 in the American Entomologist Journal, and it's called When Two Legs Makes a Big Difference. Now, this article looks at the small subsection of society that is entomologists, so people who work with or study insects, and then narrows it down to an even smaller subsection of them, those who are afraid of spiders, a.k.a. me. To make sure we don't get any angry tweets, spiders are not insects, but people express shock when I tell them that I work with beetles, but I'm scared of spiders because, you know, surely they're pretty similar in a vague kind of how they look, how they move sort of way. I mean, you know what I'm like. Like, you know, most days I'm picking up beetles. I've worked with cockroaches. I call them cute. I let them crawl up my arms. But spiders. Yeah. I I remember when we first started going out, I had a photo of a spider that I'd taken, which... 
you couldn't even look at because <sighs> it was too... Uh, I mean, admittedly, it was a big spider. Um, I described it as being about the size of a dinner plate. Yeah. Um, but you you, would, you wouldn't you would go near that photo if it was on my laptop. And to screen. clarify, that was an Amazonian species, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it wasn't. We're not talking about a house spider in the UK. No. It was genuinely the size of a dinner plate. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm much better than that now. But they just, I don't know. I'm fine with those cute little, like, money spiders. And, like, those little spindly, leggy ones that just sit in the corner and do nothing. Like, they're cool. But anything hairy or with thick legs is no friend of mine. No, no. So I had a huge one in the room the other day when you weren't here. And I had to, like, give myself a long internal pep talk to be able to just put a glass over it. Yeah. Oh, it's tough. Bit mad. Also, illogical. Yeah. Okay, so what are your feelings about spiders? Well, I'm not keen on touching them, but only because I know that they might bite. But in this country, they're not... Like, most of them aren't going to do much. No. Unless you have an allergic reaction, of course. Yeah, no, but I... I'm just I'm more wary of things that I I know might bite me and 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 particularly if I find it you know like yeah of course a dog might bite you but like you can read a dog and to an extent like I mean I happily let wasps crawl on me if they land on me because you can see what they're doing the problem with a spider is I'm never quite sure and also they're very fast so there is always that risk that they can kind of run up your sleeve I would describe it as a as a fear it's just a wary of the fact that you know this animal is capable of doing something painful and also I, and I don't want to do anything to harm it like I'm I'm much happier picking up beetles for example mm. purely because they're pretty robust whereas like th- there is a little bit of me that if I pick up a spider I'm worried that I'm gonna like break a leg off yeah and yeah. that also would you know I'd also feel terrible and, and I'd you know I'd be very careful about handling other insects that I thought were delicate well that's the thing I really scared of spiders but I don't I can never kill a spider that's the thing. I have to, like, put a glass over or get you to put a glass over and then pop them outside. Yeah. Because I actually think they're amazing. Like, I think they're so cool. Just don't want them on me. Mm. And they might, you know, they're so unpredictable. What if they, What if they like, accidentally get on me? Or, oh, no, no. But I'm not alone being an entomologist with this kind of fear. So Vetter knew that these arachnophobic entomologists existed. So he set out to find out, you know, why they were afraid of spiders and how their arachnophobia differed from the arachnophobia amongst the general public. So to participate in the study, people had to meet three qualifications. I quote, they must, one, consider themselves to be entomologists, Two, at some point in their duties, handle whole-bodied arthropods that are alive. And three, have negative feelings towards spiders. Now, these qualifying participants then had to complete a standardised phobia test about spiders, then separately rate their disgust and fear of spiders, because obviously fear and disgust are two different things. We don't necessarily think of them as being so, but, like, I'm, I'm not disgusted by spiders, but I am scared of them. And then they had to answer questions about any negative experiences or any experiences where family members might have negatively influenced their view of spiders. And then they had to designate which aspects of spiders they found negative from a list of traits. And this included traits like, you know, what you're talking about, which is like medical traits. So things like maybe their bites are dangerous, you know, their physical traits, their behavioural traits, aesthetics or what they look like. And then they also had to give a like slash dislike score for 30 different animals presented by VETA. Now, 41 lucky entomologists qualified for the study. Not a huge study, but, you know, 
we'll work with it. And they range from being a bit uncomfortable, I guess what you're saying, right? A little bit uncomfortable around spiders. Yeah. What he's terming arachno-adverse to avoiding pictures of spiders, what I used to do, because, you know, they're just so terrified of them. So let's have a little look at the results. Firstly, the phobia questionnaire. Now, this highlighted the massive difference in levels of fear of spiders. To the statement, spiders are one of the worst of my fears, five entomologists gave the highest totally agree score of seven. And one interesting thing to come out of this is that there was no significant difference in fear levels between men and women, whereas in the general public, women are more likely to be arachnophobic than men. Mm. Says something about women who go into entomology? I'm not sure. Yeah. Also, when the results of this test are considered in conjunction with some personal info on the participants, it gets really interesting. In the general public, arachnophobes are also more likely than non-arachnophobes to dislike what are commonly thought of as disgust-inducing invertebrates. So things like maggots, you know, things that most people find gross. But some of the arachno-adverse and arachnophobic entomologists worked with cockroaches, flies and maggots. Now, this speaks to me because I spend a lot of my time in research, like pulling apart mouse carcasses to, to find beetle larvae inside. And like it's kind of gross, but it's fine. Whereas spiders, like... Absolutely nope. Yeah. No. So it's not a disgust thing. No. It's not a. It, it's some other kind of. It's something about of them. Fear yeah. About them. So going on to the fear disgust surveys, entomologists generally showed lower levels of disgust for spiders than the general public. But interestingly, there was some disgust there. So one respondent was a forensic entomologist who, I mean, they're going to... Yeah, exactly. So they're routinely going to be handling maggots. And, like, that job's going to involve, like, picking up a handful of maggots out of dead things. Anyway, so they gave spiders a maximum disgust score and said, I'd rather pick up a handful of maggots than have to get close enough to a spider to kill it. I mean, they're probably picking up maggots out of dead people. Like, yeah. That's an intense uh, job. That's weird. Yeah. I would much rather handle a spider than a maggot. You'd think so, right? Mm. Anyway, yeah, I didn't think of them as being, like, dirty or gooey or anything, but interesting, anyway. So going on to the negative experiences of spiders... 19 out of the 41 respondents replied with negative experiences of spiders. And these included having spiders crawling on them, being bitten by spiders, running into spiders' webs. Oh, that one gets me. Having spider-based nightmares and being tormented by family members with spiders. The last one's really sad. Yeah. Anyway, now, this, this is appropriate because my, the, I think the earliest memory that I have of being scared of spiders has really stuck with me. I was playing with a friend in my Wendy house and I was probably about five and I chucked this blanket over my head and then an enormous spider ran out of it and just onto me. And then the spider was running all over me. I was screaming. My friend was screaming. Let's be honest, the spider was probably screaming in its own little spidery way. It was awful and it, it kind of stuck with me. Mm. But that kind of thing's always going to happen, right? But what's really unfortunate and what really sucks is the seven respondents who say they were either told by their parents that spiders were dangerous or they're tormented with spiders when they were young. Yeah, that's really sad. It's really sad. It's, it's, this, it's this kind of social behaviour that really kind of reinforces dislike and disgust of things like spiders and, and wasps and, and, other, and rats and things that, you know, are actually really important parts of ecosystems and... We ought to kind of live alongside them. Yeah. And it just gets gets people to have these unnecessary visceral reactions to mm. them. I mean, I think the parents thing is, is, it's unfortunate, but it is more understandable depending on where you live, right? Yeah. So most of the respondents were American and in America there are a few venomous spiders. So like the likelihood that your kids are going to come across a venomous spider is really low. 
But I mean, I kind of get it, right? Parents worry. Yeah. But then one case study was a girl said that her sister used to chase her around the house with dead spiders and tissues when she was six. And that's why she has arachnophobia. It's like, that's just mean. Sisters are the worst. So briefly going on to the survey about the traits that entomologists fear in spiders, VETA presented them with traits that are like most commonly associated with negative connotations to spiders. Like they move unpredictably, they have too many legs, that kind of thing. Now, funnily, a high number of entomologists cited having eight legs as a problem, which is weird, right? Because entomologists are used to things with six legs. Yeah. But apparently another set, just too many. So are they also scared of things with 10 legs or is it specifically eight? Do they so, not like crabs? I think the question was too many legs. So it, you can't tell. Okay. Or, or I'd want to dig this. into that a little bit. Like, yeah. well, How do they feel about centipedes? Mm. I feel the the eight leg thing is that's really quite illogical. Well, he's saying it makes sense for like a member of the public where they're really used to like bipeds or quadrupeds. Yeah. And then suddenly something's got eight legs. Like, fair enough. Yeah. But it's interesting with entomologists who work with six legs all the time for them to be like, no, no, six legs good, eight legs, what the, yeah. what, no. <laughs> also, I mean, what are their feelings towards octopi? I don't know. We should ask them. We should yeah. contact them. I mean, go back to 2013 and send them a letter. Yeah. So the like interesting you bringing up other animals there because the like slash dislike test of thirty animals is quite funny because Veta provided a range of animals and when this test is done on the general public the top rated animals are fuzzy cute mammals like dog horse cat but not so for entomologists as you're an entomologist or more specifically a lepidopterist I suppose yeah what are your top five taxa within insects no or, in general oh in general ah uh, yeah I'm gonna go with Obviously, butterflies. Obviously. Birds. Yeah. Dragonflies and damselflies as one. Amphibians. Ooh. Ooh. Mm, yeah. I really like frogs. Broad, yeah. Yeah, they're very cute. And, ooh, I, ooh, wait, oh, hang on. I kind of forgot about marine things. Oh, no. Yeah, nudibranchs. Nudibranchs. Yeah. Okay. So for these entomologists, four of the top five were inverts. Butterfly, dragonfly, ladybird, porpoise, bee. Hmm. Porpoise is a random one. Yeah. <laughs> Very random one. <laughs> sure, you know, you do you. So the, the least favourite animals were quite similar to the general public, though. They had rats, snakes, mice, maggots, scorpions, slugs and cockroaches coming towards the bottom. Spiders were the second from last, the entomologists. Do you know what won the title of most disliked? By entomologists. By entomologists, yeah. Mammals. No. <laughs> No, they're so jealous. <laughs> Why do they get all the attention? No, no, actually, it's quite a normal one. I'd say I, I'm going to agree with this. Mm, but not rats. I like rats. Um, wasps? Ticks. Ah, oh, fair. Yeah. Yeah, fair. Yeah. No one fair. in the rat mind likes no. ticks. So Veta finished off this important and relevant study with five case studies. And I want to just highlight one of them. So case study two was told by her parents that spiders were dangerous and wasn't allowed to hold a tarantula as, as a child when she was at a zoo and someone offered her. Yeah. Because they were like, no, no, it's dangerous. Can't do that. Her phobia test score was within the range of clinical arachnophobia. But the respondent's research involved maggot dissection and she awarded maggots the highest like score of one out of all the animals. This respondent is fully aware of the paradox of the spider-hating, maggot-friendly situation, but concluded an email with, maggots don't sneak up on you and jump in your hair. Full marks for this woman. Completely, (laughs) completely agree. I mean, yeah, yeah, that is... 
Yeah, that is true. Exactly, they're just more predictable. So to summarise the study, Vetter concludes with two observations, and I quote, Number one, arachno-averse reactions, which often started at a young age, were generally not overcome through habituation, even after decades of exposure to insects. So basically there's no hope. Yeah. Number two, Although arachnophobia and negative reaction to disgust-evoking animals are correlated in the general public, arachno-adverse reactions amongst entomologists still were extant, even though the latter group works with non-charismatic insects. So, you know, they work with things that people wouldn't think were pretty or cute, like butterflies. Despite the assumption that entomologists would extend warm feelings towards spiders because of their habituation to arthropods in general... Arachnophobia does occur in some members of our profession. For these people, two legs makes a big difference. So I rest my case. There are others like me out there. You know, the weird thing is, even throughout all this, I find them fascinating. I joke about hating them, but I think they're awesome. Yeah. well, it's, so, it's so strange. I know it's illogical. Yeah, I'm going to go with he should do a follow-up study on there. If he's if he's going to say that it's the number of legs that counts, he needs to do a follow-up study on octopuses. Would you like me to contact him? Yeah, please Good. do. Good. Maybe for next episode. Yeah. Anyway, what have you got? Okay, so I'm going to start off with a question for you this week. Okay, I'm excited. Why did the scientist tickle the wombat? Um, because it was really cute and they wanted to? Uh, no. Okay. Because she wanted to make it wee. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Confused? Yes. Well, so was the wombat. <laughs> you know that feeling when you're in a public toilet and you really need to go, but you get stage fright because there's someone else in there? Oh, that's so, yeah. so often. Well, imagine that, except you're a wombat and the other person is a scientist who's been coming into your enclosure every day, watching where you pee, and then starts turning up while you're sleeping, waking you up and tickling your bum. <laughs> I feel very violated, to be honest. Yeah. Shall I elaborate? Please do. Okay. Northern hairy-nosed wombats are critically endangered. But both they and their close relatives, the elaborately named southern hairy-nosed wombats, (laughs) are difficult to breed in captivity, which makes it hard to establish captive populations that can be used to safeguard the species in case anything goes wrong with the wild population. So to try and improve captive breeding success. Scientists in Australia were looking for a way to measure changes in wombat hormone levels to help them understand more about their reproductive cycles. Critically, catching and sedating wombats to take blood samples is stressful and dangerous for both the wombats and the humans. Okay, so you shouldn't do that. So, so you shouldn't do that. Well, it's it's not great. And it also tends to contain... If you're looking at hormone levels, they can change quite quickly. And so if you're stressing out the uh, wombat, you can kind of contaminate the sample that you're about to collect. But I think it's mostly for the sort of health and safety of the wombats and the people, because wombats can be quite aggressive. <laughs> you wouldn't think from looking You wouldn't at them. think, no. They, <laughs> they look so so innocuous. So but, cuddly. Yeah, I, so I actually came across this. People might have seen this. There was a Guardian article last week about wombats' a potential possible ability to use their bums to crush skulls. <laughs> They wouldn't do that. Look at their little faces. Well, so people have apparently found skulls of foxes and dingoes at the entrance of wombat holes. And wombats apparently use their their bombs quite a lot. So they use them to fight and they use them to flirt. So there's this sort of hearsay theory that they, they're they quite powerful. They've got a fused bony plate in there. So there's this theory that they... Oh, no, sorry, I've missed a bit. They also use them to defend themselves against predators because they they essentially hide themselves in their burrow and use their bum to block up the entrance so that the predators can't get in. (laughs) Multi-talented bum. Yeah. 
because it's just it's just a, a bony plate. Yeah. Wow. But there's a theory that they can possibly also then, because they're quite strong, crush the skull of <gasps> the predator against the roof of their burrow. Oh, what? Except this has never actually been recorded, like, you know, yeah, filmed yeah, or, yeah. or seen. It's just a sort of theory because some they could if they wanted to well maybe yeah. yeah but also like lots of things use the burrows so it could be a case of they're clearing them out and that's why the skulls are there and wow. so anyway i came across this article and was like well this is perfect mm-hmm. for lockdown science and then i was really devastated to find that actually that it was just a guardian article there was no paper linked from it mm. so instead i thought well this scientist uh whose name is alice swimborn um does some pretty cool research about wombats. Wombats are brilliant and generally hilarious. There's clearly some stuff here. So I kind of went diving into essentially Alice Swinburne's research history <laughs> and found and found a paper on tickling wombat bums. Amazing. And that's why that's Please how we're tell here. me more. Anyway, I've digressed quite a lot from my notes. <laughs> wombats are dangerous. <laughs> So it's not a good idea to try and sedate them for the wombat's sake or the human's sake. So the scientists needed a non-invasive method to try and understand what was going on with their hormones. Now, they tried using faecal samples, which is sort of the the go-to. But what they found was that not all of the hormones were present in it in high enough concentration to really get anything out of. In particular, they couldn't detect much estrogen. Mm. And that's really what was important for understanding their reproductive cycles. So they turned to urine. But urine is a bit harder to collect as they term it, (laughs) post-elimination, and is more easily contaminated because whereas faeces sort of stay in a nice lump, urine kind of goes everywhere, soaks into into the the ground. I mean, if you've ever had to give a pee sample for a a doctor, like, you know, you you, you have to kind of catch it mid-flow, don't you? I'm really glad we're having this conversation. Well, we're getting... We're just starting. Yeah, we're on the brink of a deep dive here. So, therefore... In order to get clean, reliable, regular urine samples to monitor changes in hormone concentration, they decided to see if they could condition the wombats to pee on demand. Okay. (laughs) And did they manage it? Well, from a group of 11 captive female wombats, the researchers selected five animals which initially tolerated the presence of and tactile stimulation from humans. Tactile stimulation. Mm. It's important to note the other six wombats were either too aggressive or extremely timid. <laughs> like a whole scale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, no, you're not coming near me, or I'm really, really scared. Please stop. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, the five wombats that they could work with were initially habituated to human presence by the scientists regularly entering their pens and observing what they brilliantly refer to as their preferred elimination areas. And then abbreviate throughout the paper to the PEAs or P's. The P's. <laughs> yeah. Slightly confusing. And their preferred elimination times. And what they found was that wombats often urinated shortly after waking up and normally in particular preferred locations. So for the next 35 days, wombats were approached twice daily, woken if they were asleep, <laughs> and I quote, lightly scratched in the general proximity of the pericloacal region until urination ensued and throughout the elimination process. <laughs> in plain English, they tickled the wombat's bum until it peed and then continued tickling until it was done. <laughs> but they sometimes woke them up to do But they this. sometimes woke them up. In fact, they quite regularly did it. So they checked on them at six o'clock in the morning and I think 3.30 in the afternoon. So quite regularly they're waking them up in the morning. <laughs> 
But the tickling wasn't always effective. So do you want to guess how long they tickled for? If, you know, how long they, they continued trying before they got the wombat to go? Ooh, OK. Um, probably like, probably 10 minutes. That's a good go. Uh, that's Yeah, that's pretty good. I'd, I'd probably give up on a method after 10 minutes, call that a failure. No. Uh, 25 minutes. 25 minutes of tickling. Of tickling, yeah. And as I said, they were doing this at six o'clock in the morning, every day, for over a month, <laughs> to five wombats as well. Um, imagine spending a month waking up at the crack of dawn to go and tickle a wombat's bum for half an hour. This is why they say science is so glamorous. Yeah. I mean, actually, imagine if the wombat was called Dawn. And then you'd be waking up, you'd be tickling the crack of dawn at the crack of dawn. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> I mean, this just shows some real dedication to your science. Yep, yep, yep. So an interesting note in the paper is that during this part of the study, one wombat became highly aggressive. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I wonder what, why. Just partway through. Just, yeah, well, while they were doing this, this, this habituation phase, or no, not this isn't the habituation, this is the, the conditioning phase. Yeah, the, the one back kind of got annoyed by being tickled on the bum for half an hour every day. <laughs> so I would also be pretty irritated by this situation, I've got to say. Yeah, so this, this individual had to be removed from the trial. <laughs> I think the individual probably was pretty glad about that. Yeah, so we're down to four one bats. Okay. Um, and in the conditioning phase, um, the these four wombats peed on demand 46% of the time. Oh, good wombats. That's yeah. pretty good. That's not bad, is it? Yeah. But by deduction, for the other 100 or so attempts, the researcher was left tickling their bum for 25 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can just imagine the frustration. Can't you? Do you? What if you get cramp in your fingers? Yeah. You just sort of hands. Yeah. Get over oh. the foot. You start complaining to your friends and family you've got really bad RSI. And they're like, what are you, what from? Like, have you been on your phone too much? No, no, it's it's sort of from a, a kind of bum tickling motion. <laughs> but no, no, it's not a weird thing. Like, it's it's on a wombat. <laughs> it's like, just, just don't ask. Just, just don't. assume it's science and don't ask. Yeah. Anyhow, so with the conditioning established, they then proceeded to stage three of the experiment. Remember, we're not just doing this for fun. We've got serious reasons here. Yeah. Which was to actually try and collect some of the urine from the wombats every day. So rather than this being a month, they kind of got hooked and just kept collecting 6am wombat wee. <laughs> I guess some people like to get their freshly brewed morning coffee and others prefer their freshly brewed morning wombat wee. Yeah. It's a hard ha- habit to break, you know. Once you're, once you're hooked. But excitingly... By stage three, their success rate was also improving. Mm-hmm. Good for them. Um, and urine was collected on 82% of attempts. That's so impressive. That's amazing, That's right? really impressive. Yeah. And the average time to urination had dropped from 300 seconds to about 175 seconds. They're experts at this. Yeah. So essentially, they can walk in and give the wombat a little tickle and it's weeing in about three minutes. I wonder whether this is a transferable skill to anything else. I I don't know. I mean... I mean, as scientists, it doesn't need to be. Like, I, I fully can imagine the level of satisfaction at getting this down to an art yeah. form. So they, they did... Um, they referenced in the introduction to the paper that this was, ba- I think, basically the first time that anyone had tried conditioning um, a marsupial, 
Wow. So obviously conditioning's been going on for quite a long yeah. time, you know, conditioning of, of mammals generally. But actually this was the first time anyone had really tried on a marsupial. So they didn't know whether it was going to be something that was possible because mm. obviously they're they're more distantly related to other mammals and maybe they respond differently to stimuli. But apparently not. But not, yeah. No. Anyway, it should be noted that this method only actually worked on four of the 11 wombats. So alternative urine collection methods are still required. But for the purposes of getting something out of this, you know, I feel like that's a success. It's impressive. I also feel like it's one of those great examples of the reality of science, <laughs> where you go in thinking, I'm going to use science to save wombats from extinction. Like This is going to be my legacy. And a few years down the line, you're tickling a wombat's behind at six in the morning <laughs> and really questioning your life choices. <laughs> But I'm going to give them some credit because I actually think this is a bit of a breakthrough in wombat captive breeding. As I said, like these things are really difficult to get to breeding captivity. Yeah. They're really critically endangered. We need to kind of do do what we can. Um, and, and this is potentially actually really useful because if it helps to understand their breeding behaviour, it could actually assist wombat conservation. However, the last thing I want to say, which I really want to appreciate, is that in figure two, they provide not one, but three photographs of the stage three collection oh, no. <laughs> as if to prove that they really did it and they're collecting the pea in a frying pan <laughs> oh don't mix up your frying pans no i'm gonna show you the picture please do and um and then leave it there oh, no. there you go oh that's really cute tickle 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 slide under the frying pan and then it goes Wombat releases and you know what they actually they start the tickling before putting the frying pan under yeah but well i mean they know that you know on average they've got 175 seconds they're of tickling. experts yeah <laughs> that's really cute i also have so much respect for these scientists it's amazing isn't it <laughs> it's so good oh, I, lo- so I, I like i like this study because it combines being actually really good science and quite important with being hilarious. Being hilarious. And also it's about wombats and they're just naturally adorable. Yeah. Although I didn't realise they're so dangerous. No, neither did I. What no. was what what could they do to you? Is it teeth, claws? Or, I mean other than bums? I think I think bums, yeah. They're, they're, oh it's always bum. bums. Well no, I th- I think they, they might be quite bitey as well, I'm not really sure. They they, they kick a lot. Uh, so I, th- I think most of their defence is from their rear end. Right. There's a lot of bomb shoving and kicking. Yeah, but, but they're actually this. quite big. You know, yeah. they're they're quite they're bulky, weighty little animals, and so they're actually sort of yeah, they've got some strength behind them. Oh, look at this one though. I mean, I was going to say the researcher's got it eating at the palm of her hand, but no, she's got it weeing in the centre of her frying pan. <laughs> yeah, what more can you want? Isolation recommendations. So, because we're limited at the moment in what we can do for entertainment, we like to offer you our isolation recommendations. What's your recommendation this week? Well, obviously, I'd always recommend that you go get some fresh air, explore the outdoors, yada, 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 yada. But really, this week, I want to highlight the fact that Walking with Dinosaurs is available on Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's the kind of nostalgia which 2020 needs. So if you haven't seen it, it's a series that came out in 1999, and it's basically a nature documentary of dinosaurs created with a combination of CGI and puppets layered over real scenery. And I expect to watch it again and think wow this is really rubbish like the effects are really rubbish it's really dated and like i mean yeah if you compare it to what will be created now the effects are clearly dated 
But I don't know whether you agree with this. It's it's actually really impressive for something that was made for TV in the late nineties. Yeah, no, it is. I I agree, and I remember I remember watching it first time round and being so excited. It, so th- this series came out at my prime. I'm obsessed with dinosaurs. Like I I was the classic eight, nine-year-old kid, really wanted to be a paleontologist, just thought dinosaurs were the coolest thing in the world. And then this series came on TV and I was in heaven. You're like, um, everything I ever wanted. Yeah. And to be honest, I mean, it, it's, it is still actually just as good. It's so I, good. Do you, do you remember, I don't know whether I've ever told you this. I had, so I had the, they did a book to accompany the series. Oh, yeah. And they, they used to do a lot of, well, I still do, I think, hardback books to accompany big TV series. I read the entire Walking with Dinosaurs book cover to cover. That's impressive yeah. for you. You don't read books. No. Not... <laughs> well, like, those sort of books are designed to read in bits, right? Yeah. But I, over the course of, I don't know, weeks or months, I would read it in bed every night. Aww. And my parents would apparently used to come in in the night and they would fight. Like, you know, I'd have fallen asleep and I would just have the book on my face because <laughs> I'd so lie weird. there on my back reading. <laughs> I could totally understand why. I don't think I fully appreciate it at the time. Like, it's really good. I mean, I, I'm sure that some of the science is probably out of date, right? Like, I mean, they they do make a lot of assumptions as yeah. well about behaviour yeah. to kind of, so they can create that proper, like, nature documentary feel. But it's really entertaining, basically. Yeah. I'd just, I'd recommend it for a watch, like, to anyone, really, whether you've seen it before or you've never seen it. Yeah, I was blimmin' delighted when I found out it was available, and I think other people should know about it. Yeah. End of story. <laughs> anyway, what have you got? So I, I'm, again, a little bit disappointed. It's like my Guardian article. I'm a little bit disappointed about this because I had a Twitter account all lined up for this potential new lockdown science when, when it was looking a bit like we were going to go back into lockdown. And I love I, how it's like other people stockpile, we stockpile articles for yeah. lockdown science. I looked this up yesterday to check it. And the account has been discontinued. Uh, but, but it's of course, available, the right? joys of the internet are the, the fact that the account is still there. So you can scroll back through a timeline, but there are no new posts. But the account is called daily underscore owls. In fact, it's a double underscore. I think it's a bit weird. So daily underscore underscore owls. Yes. Mm. Um, and what they used to do up until pretty much the start of November was just post a daily owl <laughs> photo, video, GIF, sometimes with a fact Sometimes just a gratuitous owl, sometimes kind of doing something silly, sometimes just, you know, being a being an owl. Just being just, just sometimes you just gotta be an owl. Yeah. You know, dopey owls, snoozy owls, <laughs> wide awake alert owls, running owls. I mean it's just I, I defy anyone to look at a photo of an owl and not be mildly amused at any moment. Owls are brilliant. Yeah. Owls just, they can so easily express, like, how you're feeling at the moment. Again, whether that's, like, grumpy, schnoozy, happy, really alert. That know. morning coffee. Yeah. Um, I just, I, 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 it's a really dangerous account, actually, because you just scroll through the feed and you'll just keep going. Like, you, but... So are you really bringing this up because you want people to know about it? Or is it actually just a public shout out to Daily Owls to come back, please? I, th- well, I think now at this point, it's a public shout out. So if, if we have any fans and, and followers of the show, this, I'm, I'm going to ask you all to give this account a follow and see if it'll persuade them to come back. Yeah, exactly. It's our campaign. It's our if they, campaign. If, if, they're, if, they're, if their number of followers suddenly spikes while they're doing nothing, yeah. maybe it'll trigger them into thinking... We should get going again. Yeah, a campaign of niceness. Yeah, either, either that or it'll make them think, hey, we can get followers without doing it if they get their own 
maybe we'll tweet them with this episode and be like, there's new followers? Yeah, that was us. Yeah. And they'll be like, dude, there are only two. And we're like, that's our fan base. Guys, guys, we lost followers. <laughs> we are so sorry to what, you and the owls. What did you do? <laughs> well, that's about all we've got time for today. If you want to send us your thoughts or recommendations for cool science we should look at ready for the next show, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Andrew underscore Bladen. And I'm at Eleanor underscore Bladen. And if you haven't listened to our last series, or you did and you want to listen to it again for some reason, then we are also available on Apple Podcasts. Just check out Lockdown Science. And hey, you could even give us five stars. <gasps> that would be exciting. I mean optimistic Optim- I'm, yeah. I'm going hard yeah maybe yeah. i hope they don't do stars to match my score in the quiz every week oh no please don't do that no. because we really can't afford to to deal with that situation <laughs> apple podcast will take us off well we hope you've enjoyed the show make sure you tune in next time for another episode of lockdown science on cam fm